2: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we revisit two films available to stream one celebrating the Harlem Renaissance, and one the LGBT history of Mardi Gras. And we look at the queer juggernaut that is World of Wonder Productions. But first, we visit with poet, singer, activist, and friend, Amber Flame. I want a bursting so
3: ready. I come out my skin. I want to be desired down to the pit to end tangy fibered between her teeth, sucked in sweet satisfaction. When she says she loves, no, really, really, really loves plums. I want her to mean me. And maybe that plum knew I needed three days to truly understand the mess I am willing to make
2: to be consumed. Flames' work explores spirituality and sexuality, crosswoven with themes of grief and loss, motherhood and magic, and interstitial joy. How do you identify within the LGBTQI+ community?
3: I identify as a queer woman. I use lesbian sparingly. Queer fits the best, I think.
2: Why are you an artist, a creative?
3: It saved my life. It saved my sanity. It saved my sense of being. I found myself through words. My family is about words. My mother had a doctorate in philosophy of language, so we literally grew up questioning how words work between two people and what it means to say something and be understood by somebody else. Then I started working and teaching. I've done a writing workshop with incarcerated women for over 12 years now. There is healing power in sharing stories. Giving yourself permission to hear and witness other people's stories gives yourself permission to see yourself within other people's stories. And that's where compassion begins, knowing that you're not alone.
2: Tell me about that first day of for incarcerated women using the power of poetry to help them express themselves.
3: There's a police officer in Seattle, Washington, named Kim Boguki, who went in and asked this really kind of random question. If there was something someone could have said or done to change the path that led you to prison, what would it have been? And one of the women at Washington Correction Center for Women in Gig Harbor prayed on this question and asked the women around her to start writing their answers and handed the stack of answers to Kim. We got introduced through a mutual friend. She was looking for a writing workshop facilitator to go in and help these women kind of go deeper because she knew there was something there. I built a workshop based around their initial answers to help them go deeper into the questions. It's been life-changing, over 3,000 answers. We did youth workshops. We've gone to California women's prisons, to men's prisons in Alabama, all over the world, really. There's a documentary about it. Incarceration is such a drastic and horrific thing and have such horrible impacts on the individual. The juxtaposition of that and the healing process through storytelling being witnessed is clear, even more clear, it's unavoidably explicit. So many of them, the first thing they say is, nobody's ever asked me something like that before. We're not asking about the crime, we're not asking about what you did, we're not asking what you wanna do even in the future yet. We come back around to that after saying, where could somebody have intervened? And that just elucidates how much we have responsibility to our fellow humans, how much trauma and damage we cause each other on a daily basis through our own hurts and our own insecurities and our own lack of healing. So what happens if we all commit to self-healing so that we can commit to mutual community, worldwide healing? Every time somebody is angry or mean, it's very clear to me that there's just so much hurt under it. You can't ignore that. You can't ignore humanity if somebody shares their story like that.
2: As a queer Black woman, how do you see where we are in terms of progress?
3: I think we have a long way to go. I go back to the hope that I have I have so much more hope for the youth. They're such light bringers. And, you know, I have two sort of stepdaughters that are now 21 and 22. There's this freedom that youth are allowing themselves and not just allowing, but expecting. They're not struggling with the same things that even my generation is struggling with. Is that OK? Is that right? Is that wrong? There's a looseness coming there. But we have a lot of really hard hurt people that have chosen to be awful. And they're often moneyed, white men in power. I think about karma a lot. I think our nation has a karmic past that it would like to forget about. And we're not going to be allowed to forget. We're living in a time that is going to end up in the history books. What the pandemic has brought about is an acute attention on the issues. You cannot ignore them because you have nothing else to do. We saw that in the protests this summer. I call it the summer of killings because there's been a summer of killings for about 10 years now. And what that means to me is not that there's suddenly Black people dying in the streets at the hands of police, but there's suddenly a Black person dying at the hands of police in the streets that gets the attention of everybody. This is happening year-round for us, but every summer there's one that just gets everybody's attention. And it starts this whole thing of like, I can't believe. And, And now it's to the point where people can't say they can't believe. Now they can believe it because it happens over and over again. And so now they have to decide whether they're going to do something about it or they're not. And if you sit complacent, you can't call yourself a good person. And people are really struggling with that identity too. What does it mean to be a good person? Can you be a good passive person? And I don't believe you can. And I think that that pressure point is super necessary and super painful. Change is not easy. Giving up privilege, giving up any kind of sense of security, especially if you grew up not having any and you kind of claimed a corner of your own, it's hard to say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice this for the greater good. We see it with masks. The people who are staying home and masking up and acting with such care around COVID, there's a growing resentment for all the people who are not. We have a really hard time choosing for the greater good as individuals, and we're encouraged to be individualistic. And all of this leads to a really toxic stew that shouldn't surprise anybody, because really, it's a sediment of slavery, of the indigenous slaughter, of the becoming white that happened. You know, you talk about when the Irish and the Greek and the Italians started immigrating, and they were not white people (laughs) when they first came here to the United States. They were not. Claiming of power, this assumption of power and how to get closer to it has given us this real thick residue at the bottom of our melting pot, our mixing pot, whatever you want to call it. And now it's all stirred up and it's murky and it's dark and it feels hopeless, but sometimes you got to boil the toxins out. There's a sense that moving away from blackness is how to succeed. And that's all over the world. Many, many of my friends are talking about, do we get out of this country? Where do we go? Where can we be safe? Where can our our families be safe? And it's brought up this really in-depth look at, ultimately, it is unsafe to be Black in this world. And the darker you are, the more unsafe your body is everywhere. Places where there's so many brown people, you're surrounded by brown people, the leaders are brown, the teachers are brown. Those are safer places. You're not going to be targeted simply based on the brownness of your skin. You saw it when COVID hit, but in China, they were forcing out African immigrants. In France, they forced out African immigrants. There's not a place to be safe and black in this world that doesn't need deeper examination and healing work.
2: When somebody sees a Black Lives Matter sign or somebody says Black Lives Matter, if somebody were to come up to you and go, "What? white lives matter too, Amber Flame, how do you respond to that?
3: I can't even fathom, I would say. Everything in our society has validated that statement, that white lives matter. The reason why we cry black lives matter is because it's too easy to forget how often they don't. You are not at risk. If nobody ever says white lives matter, white lives do not face any kind of increased danger. However, black lives, whether we cry black lives matter or not, are constantly being endangered. I'm just trying to get free. I'm just trying to raise my daughter to be free in herself. There's a lot of fear of the closed door of my own house isn't a safe place.
2: We need empathy now more than ever. We need to forge connections now more than ever. What can you do to make those things happen?
3: I foster kindness. I practice consideration. I create not just to express myself, but in a way that is purposefully, intentionally meant to be accessible to others so that they can find themselves in the story.
2: What are the positive aspects of being a church kid that help give you strength?
3: People who have true faith have true hope, and it doesn't have to be in God. You know, the greatest humanitarians are ones who have true faith that ultimately human beings want to be good. I'm pretty pessimistic. (laughs) So I think going back to the rule of love thy neighbor as thyself, honor your mother and father, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. Those are social agreements. And that's the best thing that comes from the church is the sense of social agreement. We're all agreeing to some basic principles here that help alleviate the greed, the fear that comes from trying to survive in a capitalist society.
2: What do you think about the expanding letter spectrum that we have going within our community? What does that mean to you?
3: I think it's people really trying to find themselves and identify with a group where they feel like they belong. And I love the idea that it's so expansive and so inclusive that it's no longer necessary. My best friend talks about queer culture being something that could be, could be like half lesbian on your mom's side kind of thing, where it's sort of this culture that's beyond sexuality. It's about like how you see yourself. If I say I'm black and I'm queer, then that denotes something very specific about my culture and not necessarily about who I love. The youngins have it. They are not struggling here. They're <laughs> just like, why can't we just be ourselves? My mother was a single mother and my sisters are half Mexican, half white and I'm half black, half white, technically. And I grew up as the black person in my family, but I was also light-skinned. had a white family, so people didn't necessarily allow me labels. People were like, yes, you're kind of black or you're kind of, you know, you're also white. As a black woman, we often don't read as queer. And then I had a child. Once you have a child and you're a black woman, you have to reclaim queerness almost every time. It's interesting because I went label-less for so long. I'm so unattached to the labels of uh, for myself. They don't, they don't have to mean how things go. Somebody can take it away from me at any time. And I'm like, okay, if I'm not what you want to call queer, or if I'm not black enough, or if I'm not this enough or that enough, then that seems like a you problem. For me, I'm continuing to be Amber Flame. It turns out that people actually do want to find who they belong with. And that's what that is all about, that sort of seeking for who do I attach to, who's my community, who's my family. And my family is very broad because I can see myself in relationship to so many other people.
2: She's also part of the last of the Red Hot Mamas and the music group, Bitches Gotta Eat.
3: is gonna come, uh-huh, Change's gonna come one day. One of these days and it won't be long. is gonna come one day. Change is gonna come, uh uh uh-huh, Change is gonna come one day One of these days and it won't be long Change is gonna come one day My old heart done, had enough Loving you's been way too tough Knew all along that you didn't care Ain't no need for me to be here It ain't no use Oh,
4: yeah
0: Taking this abuse Oh, yeah You
4: never
3: Blue. Oh yeah Change is gonna come on uh-huh. change, change is, is gonna, gonna come one day Change is gonna change come on Save the change Save the change Change is gonna
2: The documentary Amber mentioned is called The If Project and can be rented on Vimeo. Links to more of her poetry and music are found at TheAmberFlame.com. Next, since it's been a rough week in America, we defrag your mental drive with 90 Seconds of Fun, the IMRU Comedy Corner with the song stylings of our executive producer, Steve Pride, and the comedy sketchiness. Of the Nellie
5: Olsons.
2: Hi, we're the Nellie Olsons. I'm Nora Burns.
6: I'm Terrence Michael.
7: I'm John Cantwell.
2: And I'm Marissa Copeland. If you're looking for a codependent lesbian relationship with a needy woman, call me. I'm waiting. I'll move in with you. I'll become allergic to your cats, and when you give them away, I'll break up with you. Is that how you like it? Oh, call me. I'll wear your clothes. We'll go get counseling together and adopt a Nicaraguan crack baby, and then I'll sleep with all your friends. Is that how you like it? Oh, call me. Oh, Mama, you're so good to me. I'll stalk you till you take out a restraining order on me. Is that how you like it? Oh, call me. I've got some hot... Steamy issues for you. We'll process everything. I'll make your life hell.
8: Call me. Oh, yeah.
0: Hey everybody, it's Boy Shecky. Wow, what an attractive crowd. Everyone here is so good looking. I mean it. Everyone's so good. Whoa, whoa. Thank you, sir, for breaking the monotony. Excuse me. Is this your wife? Hey, baby doll. Wanna carry my child? Just to the corner. It can take a bath from there. I've got an American flag tattooed on my chest. Flag holes a little further down. Yeah. Seriously, dog face. You want to play doctor? You can be the receptionist. Wait, don't leave. I got a million of them.
2: Fun fact. This was the original version of that song. Although, boy George made some changes in a later version. You know what I'm saying. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. James Baldwin, acclaimed African-American writer, coming up
4: now on the Rainbow Minute. James Baldwin was born in Harlem in 1924. Coming of age in the 1940s, he felt tormented by a society that devalued what he was, black and gay. To escape his pain, he moved to Paris. There he became a writer, the likes of which have never been seen. Through his formal essays, fiction, drama, and poetry, Baldwin not only legitimized homosexual desire, but shone a light on the inhumanity of racist thought. Over 40 years, he published 22 books. His counterculture writings often brought him under attack, even by fellow African Americans, yet he remained a voice for the oppressed. His death in 1987 made front page news around the world because while most of his writings predated the civil rights and gay liberation movements, Baldwin's pen certainly figured into the equation. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Viola Baskerville.
7: Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you.
2: Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am Are You... Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. A great movie to stream to celebrate Black History Month is indirectly about the Harlem Renaissance and is called Brother to Brother.
7: Last year, a small film about a gay black man won the Special Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for four Independent Spirit Awards. Its dual and intersecting storylines explore the spiritual link between a contemporary black gay New York artist and the trailblazers of the Harlem Renaissance. It's called Brother to Brother.
9: We're talking about activism and political struggle, not what people do with their sex organs. That's your opinion. All right, guys, I don't that's like enough. not we need to hear about it in
0: this class. All right? The majority of people at the time didn't care that Baldwin was gay. That's completely beside the point. It's not when you consider
6: the contribution of ideas he made while being silenced. I mean, what else did he have to say?
2: We don't know.
10: We need to be talking about why black people were getting lynched every day across this country. This class is about black political struggle.
6: And what I'm saying has nothing to do with that?
1: Hi, I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm a filmmaker and the director of the film, Brother to Brother.
5: I was just coming to get some books out of the basement. I told you not to step foot anywhere near this house. But I need them for school. Anything you left in this house does not exist. Now get out of my sight.
1: Brother to Brother is about a friendship that forms between an elderly black gay writer from the Harlem Renaissance named Bruce Nugent and a young black teenager that's been kicked out of his house for being gay. And it's really about the transformative effect on these two characters and the ways in which they... uh change each other, the ways in which they emotionally affect each other. And it's really about how Bruce, the elderly character's memories of the Harlem Renaissance, affect this character of Perry, who was having a pretty hard time trying to find his place in the world.
6: Well, how someone like you end up sleeping in a shelter? Someone like me? Yeah. I mean, you know, a respected published writer of the Harlem
7: Renaissance.
9: Slept in hallways and rooftops then. Why would things change now? Respected? He wrote about being gay in that time. Respect was the last thing he was going to get.
1: There are huge reasons why the Harlem Renaissance is important. I think the film is really zeroing in on this younger generation within the Renaissance that was very rebellious and bold and confrontational. And I think the overall ideology in the black community at that time was that black art really needed to uplift the race and it was about this kind of social propaganda and you really had to kind of have positive portrayals in your art to sort of prove to white people that you were worthy of their respect and this generation which included bruce and zora Neale hurston and langston hughes and wallace thurman really took a stand and said you know there are other aspects of our lives that we're interested in depicting in art and some of it is positive and some of it is very gritty and realistic and deals with the experiences that we have every day. So you have Bruce dealing with homosexuality in the first piece of black gay fiction called Smoke, Lilies and Jade. You have Wallace Thurman dealing with prostitution in a story called Cordelia the Crude. You have Zora Neale Hurston kind of weaving all sorts of like Southern folklore into her stories, which never really been done before, writing in a Southern dialect. You have Langston dealing with class issues. And so I think it's important because they were the real boundary pushers the first people to talk about things that were considered taboo brother
7: to brother is not perfect simple math confounds the principal plot device the real bruce nugent died in 1987 and would have been nearly 100 today but despite this leap of logic and the occasional tendency to preach the film is a wonderful look at the issues of masculine identity within the black community how many prejudices are inextricably bound together, and the importance of our history. The black and white scenes set in the 1920s are especially poignant.
5: We need to show things that other magazines won't. If not, then why bother? We're ready to get low down and
9: nasty. There you go. Always want to go mucking around in the go. And wait
5: a minute, he has a point. Bruce and I were thinking that there are two types of people that upstanding Negroes want no part of queers, and whores. The types that we're the most fond of. And we'd like to give them a little token of our
11: appreciation. Heads, Volley. You get the streetwalker. Tails, the homosexual.
1: The stories of black gay figures in history just haven't been told. Filmmaker Rodney Evans. A, I think people just don't know those stories. I think they've been so kind of swept under the rug, and I think within the black community throughout history, it's sort of been seen as the kind of the secret that dare not speak its name, you know? It's sort of like the airing of the dirty laundry, if you talk about it. But I think that there have been gay people within the fabric of black life forever. And it's just a willingness to kind of acknowledge it and talk about it. And I think a certain kind of closed-mindedness to a dialogue about it has had really catastrophic effects. And I think it continues to. So I think the more that films like this have a chance to come out and spark a dialogue, the more beneficial it'll be to the black community.
7: This is not a film that has or will make anyone rich, but for Evans, there's reward enough in audience feedback.
1: People are incredibly appreciative and just give really heartfelt thanks and are just so profoundly moved and I think changed by the film that it's kind of amazing to witness. I mean, I think that's kind of why we do what we do (laughs) as filmmakers, but I think throughout the process, you sort of get so immersed in the minutia of making something that you forget the big picture and how it does have this kind of effect on people. It's especially appreciated within the gay community. A lot of black gay men and women have come up to me and and I think there is such a hunger within that community for a film like this, where they really felt like their experiences were being represented accurately. And just to kind of have their lives reflected back at them from the screen, I think is a very new experience for them. And and, um, so they just seem really, really deeply grateful for it. And I think on some level that, that kind of feeds me as an artist and gives me the strength and the endurance to continue making work.
7: This has been a conversation with filmmaker Rodney Evans. Brother to Brother is a very special film. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
2: Brother to Brother can be purchased at Wolf Video, W-O-L-F-E, Video, or rented to stream on YouTube. Next up a film that celebrates the queer history of Mardi Gras, is Sons of Tennessee Williams.
7: To be a gay activist before Stonewall took balls, and during Mardi Gras in New Orleans, those balls were pretty fancy.
5: My name is Tim Wolfe, and I'm director of The Sons of Tennessee Williams.
9: My name is Albert Carey, and I'm one of the subjects in The Sons of Tennessee Williams.
5: What's the film about? I like to say that the film is about the first public gay culture in the U.S., because that's almost one of the most groundbreaking aspects to the story. People lived in seclusion. The Mattachine Society was operating under drawn shades and fear of being identified. And this movie is about... Gay Mardi Gras 50 years ago, beginning in New Orleans, and all of the different civil rights that uh, it brought to gay Americans first in New Orleans. And these civil rights pioneers, as I consider them to be, they were party throwers, but they were civil rights pioneers.
9: I started in 1970, is when my first year in the club, after a disastrous love affair. I needed new friends, and I was told to come to this party, and I met members of the crew of Armenius, and they invited me to join, and I did. I'm an architect, and the guy who was putting on the ball at the time says, oh good, you're an architect. You can do the sets for the ball. What
7: was it like to be a gay man back then?
9: I had been out a few years earlier than that. I'm from actually come of age of the 60s, and the bars were always in danger of being raided, always, and police would send cute undercover cops into the bars in the hopes of and trapping young men to take them home. And once you did, I mean, if you ever invited them home, his partner was waiting for you outside, and they'd both beat you up and then drag you off to jail. And then worst of all, the next day, your name would be in the paper in a column that the Times-Picayune published every day called Attempted Crimes Against Nature. So that was very scary because that would mean you would lose everything. If your name was in that column, you could kiss your job and your family goodbye. And, I mean, everybody in New Orleans read that column. So it was very scary. I was lucky enough never to be entrapped like that. I came close at times. It was just a scary time for us. I was in raids, but somehow I never got dragged off to jail as so many other people were.
7: The film mentions that in those days, it was important for a bar to have a mixture of gay men and lesbians.
9: That's really how we broke down the dancing barriers, The lesbians and the gay men would all go out on the floor and dance together. And they really couldn't tell who was dancing with whom. That was the days when, you know, the things like the frug and all became popular. where you didn't dance with partners. You just stood there and started and jumped around. So as long as there were girls on the dance floor, the police couldn't arrest you. One of the great things about the balls was if you weren't in it, you were in a tuxedo and you had a date. And after the ball, you could dance with your date. You could dance to Johnny Mathis singing Chances Are or something very romantic. So people stayed after the ball just really to dance because we had no other outlet for dancing in the city of New Orleans without going to jail.
7: Did the police ever raid the balls?
9: The very first one that went public was raided, and everybody was hauled off to jail. And um, one of the owners of one of the gay bars, Miss Dixie, got everybody out of jail. She took all her money out of her safe and got people out of jail, but 96 people were arrested in that raid and their names were all in the paper. So that's when gay people had to decide, how do you keep from being raided? The answer was, you do what straight Mardi Gras clubs do. You get a charter from the state of Louisiana as a bona fide Mardi Gras organization. And then, with the charters, we were free of police harassment. Because now we were a legal organization that could not be rated. Unless, of course, you broke some law like some sort of sexual thing going, which none of the balls ever had anything like that. It was strictly costuming and fun. But that's how we got around all of that. And eventually, we went from having halls that held 300 people that were, frankly, owned by African-American labor unions. They were the only ones who would rent us. And then... As it became more popular, we expanded, and eventually, like Tim says, we had several thousand people attending these things, which means there were a lot of straight people coming to the balls, so that's what broke the barriers, having huge numbers of people coming to see the balls.
5: The first crew was called the Crew of Yuga. It was founded in 1959. They called it the Crew of Yuga so that the initials would be KY. This was just a group of uptown gentlemen that decided to copy the format and traditions of a carnival ball, the idea of electing a queen. And they existed pretty much in in private homes until the 1962 ball, where they had the nerve to go out and and rent basically a daycare center at night to put on their drag ball, and that was the one that was raided.
9: But they didn't have a charter or anything. It was just a group of people who went out and rented a hall.
5: Albert, what do you think of today's gay community?
9: They don't understand what we went through, but they benefit from it. And I'm glad to see that. I'm glad to see the young people of today living a free life, children coming out earlier and recognizing that they have things to offer and not be afraid all the time, not have people bash them just because they're gay. They stand up more, I think. I think they're brave, the young people today. But I think they got that way because of other people who went before them. But I never thought we would see adoption and marriage. I never thought we'd see marriage, and that's really thrilling.
7: This has been a conversation with documentarian Tim Wolfe and from the crew of Armenius, Albert Carey. The Sons of Tennessee Williams is a first-run features release. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
2: This year's Mardi Gras was no parades, limited gatherings, and shuttered bars. But you can stream Sons of Tennessee Williams on Amazon Prime. We'll be right back after this quick break. Big Mama
10: Thornton belts it out, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1926 in Montgomery, Alabama, Willie Mae Thornton was a self-taught harmonica player and drummer. She left home at 14 to join the Hot Harlem Review. She earned the name Big Mama due to her imposing size and growling voice during a stint at the Apollo Theater in New York City. In 1952, she recorded Hound Dog on Peacock Records, which sold over two million records. Four years later, young Elvis Presley would eclipse her fame with his rock and roll version of the song. Likewise, Thornton wrote and recorded Ball and Chain, which became a hit for Janis Joplin. Dressing like a man in her later years, Thornton died in 1984, the same year she was inducted into the Blues Foundation's Hall of Fame. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Gaya Degbalola.
8: Thank you for being a friend. Oh, look, I can accept the fact that he's gay, but... Why does he have to slip a ring on this guy's fingers so the whole world will know? Why did you marry George? We loved each other. We wanted to make a lifetime commitment, wanted everybody to know. That's what Doug and Clayton want too. Everyone wants someone to grow old with, and shouldn't everyone have that chance? Uh, Sophia, I think I see what you're getting at. I don't think you do. Blanche, will you marry me? Thank you, Sophia. I need to go talk to them. Fine, but I'll need an answer. I'm not going to wait for you forever. <laughs> Thank you for being a friend. Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You.
2: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. World of Wonder Productions is behind everything from million-dollar listing to RuPaul's Drag Race. If you've ever wondered how it all began, Shantae, you stay and find out.
7: Before World of Wonder founders Randy Barbado and Fenton Bailey ran a reality TV empire. They were a disco pop rock duo called the Fabulous Pop Tarts, performing at clubs in downtown New York City. They formed World of Wonder in 1981 to self distribute their records and promote the neophyte careers of fabulous friends like RuPaul.
6: I'm Randy Barbado. I'm Fenton Bailey. Randy and I met in East Village in the 80s. And we went to a club called The Pyramid. And we saw these amazing drag shows. And we looked at each other and we were like, this is art. This is incredible. This is great work. This should be seen beyond The Pyramid. The idea that drag is men in dresses, or the idea that drag, to use politically correct terminology, is transphobic fancy dress is complete nonsense. It is the ultimate creative act of taking the canvas of your body and inventing something rich and strange, not necessarily with a lot of money, but using the power of imagination, because that's what it is. And we've always felt there's a singular profundity in that expression, you know, you're born naked and the rest is drag. We're all in a kind of uniform, and that uniform is, like it or not, a kind of chosen presentation or image. It's all drag. And by drag, I mean true creativity, real imaginative work that is is significant.
11: Fenton and I, when we met in the 80s in the East Village, back when the East Village was the East Village, we were going (laughs) to NYU film school. We used to cut classes to go to the pyramid happy hour. And truly, we quit film school and enrolled at the pyramid. It really was the turning point for us. And it has been to this day. I mean, so many of the people that we met there now, we're still friendly with. They continue to inspire us. And it makes sense. We identify with and connect with outsiders because we grew up as outsiders. That's what all of our work is about. And it's not only about people who are on the fringe, but it's about that commitment to helping people who don't identify with that understand that actually we're all outsiders. We all, whether it's Maplethorpe or Tammy Faye or Monica Lewinsky or RuPaul, it's about their humanity. It's about what we have in common with people who we perceive as being other. The reality is they aren't other, they are us. That's who we are, and that's who we have always been. That's who we've always been attracted to, and our life's work has been about sharing those people, those worlds with everybody else, and getting other people to understand, actually, you know what? That's who you are.
7: Your life's work has been so prolific. I went on IMDb this morning thinking, I'll just run through these real quick, and they just kept paging
11: down, paging (laughs) down, paging down. We work with a lot of people, though. We have a production company called World of Wonder. It's a production company filled with artists, filled with outsiders, filled with people like us who, who make great things. So we're blessed.
7: World of Wonder actually did not begin as what it is today. It was to represent the fabulous Pop-Tarts. And that your relationship with RuPaul goes all the way back to those days. Our relationship with Ru
6: does go back...
7: A long way. I saw the uh, video for Whore on YouTube.
6: (laughs) That was from the Christmas special. Yeah, the Christmas special we did for Channel 4, where the meatpacking district was still then the meatpacking district. And we shot that commercial for RuPaul's Whore for She Who Is.
11: is. We've known RuPaul for over 30 years.
6: We were playing in Atlanta, performing in Atlanta, and Ru introduced us. And I think we knew then that... Rue really was the one who belonged on stage yes, we um, just like <laughs> rather than us.
11: We've known from the moment we first saw Rue that, oh, my God, every minute he's not on TV is a crime to humanity. He was fully realized. He was. He was fully realized Absolutely. 30 years ago. He was saying, everybody say love, you're born naked and the rest is drag. Then he was... Complete. And we could have these kinds of conversations we had with him then. He was spiritual. He had a vision. He had a list of the things he wanted to accomplish in his life. Don't you remember when we saw him in Atlanta and he was wheat posting posters that said RuPaul is everything? It was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes.
6: (laughs) Randy and I just looked at each other and was like, that mother's a star. We really did feel that he was a star. And it was just a question of the rest of the world catching up. And ultimately, we think it's a really good thing because we are in an age when, with the rise of Donald Trump, with the refugee crisis, with terrorism, we need to keep open hearts and open minds. There's a lot of messaging out there to close down and to shut people out. But that is not the way forward. And I just think that someone like Rue and the hundred plus drag queens now that have been on Drag Race, Uh you know, they really help us to open our hearts and open our minds and the work of Robert Mapplethorpe and, you know, the incredible artistry of Big Frieda and even, you know, Frederick and Ryan from Million Dollar Listings. The great thing is these are all characters who live their life out loud have to be gay, but who just without apology, without shame, have the courage to be themselves and not let other people's ideas silence them or not edit themselves to accommodate themselves to this false idea of normality. Because as Randy said, normality doesn't exist. We're all ultimately a minority of one. So everyone's a little bit gay.
7: When people start talking down on reality television, it always makes you think That's not one thing. There are several kinds of reality television. There's several levels of quality and integrity. And really, ultimately, all of it, reality
6: scripted, unscripted, competition elimination, whatever you want to call it, it's really all storytelling.
11: We don't like to trash other TV, but I do think our stuff is stuff we're attracted to. So there's some things out there we're never gonna make because we're not attracted to it. We're not really into violence, so we're not gonna make table tossing shows. We, and the people who we work with, just work on stuff we're passionate about. So there's some stuff out there that I don't particularly like, and I know we're never gonna be doing that stuff because we're not passionate about it. Life's too short. Two queens stand before me. Ladies, this is your last chance to impress me and save yourself from elimination. The time has come for you to lip sync for your life. Do you think the show has changed drag? I think that the show hasn't changed drag. I think it has created more opportunity. I mean, the interesting thing and the thing that we're completely committed to with Drag Race is there's a winner every season, but everyone's a winner who's on Drag Race. We're committed to just growing drag and growing the art of drag and using Drag Race to create that interest and excitement about this art form. And what's great about this show, and it's unique to it, to all other competition reality shows, is that we have a hundred drag queens who've been on that show, and Almost all of them have careers now. They get booked, they make money. We have kind of reinvigorated people's interest in drag, which is so important. It's so important, especially now, because drag queens are the Marines of the LGBTQ community. Their high heels are the boots. They have fought for the cause from day one. They threw the brick at Stonewall. They don't get the respect they deserve. And this show, yes, it's a TV show and it's entertainment and there's fun and there's joy, and, but it is political. We do believe for so long that these artists have gone unrecognized. And it's great that it's had the life that it's had and knock wood, it will continue because the longer it's on, the broader it can be, the more types of queens we can include. You know, we have pageant queens, comedy queens, fishy queens. We're growing it to represent all the different types of artists who are in drag. And by the way, now we also have DragCon, which this year will be the second year, May 4th, at the Los Angeles Convention Center. Last year, there were 14,000 people. At DragCon, there were families, children, all kinds of drag queens. And this year, it's going to be double the size. So we've really tapped into a tribe of people out there, people who love drag, people who do drag. And our commitment is to make it as inclusive as possible. And, you know, it's hard. It's challenging because we can only have like 10 queens a year on. And it's funny, after the first couple seasons, people are like, well, you're going to run out of drag queens. Uh Uh-uh. No, we mm-hmm. aren't, because there's a whole new generation of young drag queens, plus the older drag queens now are understanding it's okay to be on Drag Race. So know? Drag
6: Race is really a platform or a stage. I suppose you could say that traditionally TV has been drag queen resistant. Drag queens belong on TV, no question. The small screen is perfect for the big visuals and the big hats. it's just perfect, medium.
11: First came Drag Race, then Drag Con. The next thing for us is drag TV. I mean, we want a network just filled with drag queens.
7: You have a YouTube channel now, correct?
11: Yes. Wow Presents, where a number of the girls, like Alyssa Edwards, there are a number of queens who have shows on Wow Presents.
7: What is the best part of being you? Mm. Wow. Well, I guess the best
6: part is it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, sure, it's hard work. But it's really more fun and enjoyable. And we really do love what we do and feel really lucky to be able to do it. And I think that's the best part. Mm
11: -hmm. Sometimes it gets challenging when you're making TV and when you're dealing with people who are attracted to the lights. Sometimes They get it twisted and they forget that there's actually room for everyone at the table. So that can be challenging. But when that's not part of the equation, when people get... I love it when people get what we're doing, that we're just trying to bring more people to the table. DragCon is such... Like, that's a great thing. That's one of the best things that, that we... What's the best thing about being you is getting to do something like DragCon because it's the total manifestation of everything we're about. And everyone gets to participate in the different ways that you want to, like there's enough room for everyone. You know, there are a few queens who (laughs) like, it's never big enough, it's never enough. But increasingly I think people get that that's what we're about. And that's really rewarding. This has been a conversation with World of Wonder founders
7: Randy Barbado and Fenton Bailey. Find more information at worldofwonder.net. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Oh.
2: More info on World of Wonder productions can be found at worldofwonder.com. RuPaul's DragCon in LA and New York, plus the Drag Race live show at the Flamingo Casino in Las Vegas, are on hold during the pandemic. That's the bad news. The good news is we have time for a last word tonight. That honor goes to the queen of last words, Julia Sugarbaker, from the 90s sitcom. Designing women.
8: You seem to have forgotten the phrase separation of church and state. But the one thing I did forget was just how divisive and dishonest and distasteful someone like you can be. I've sat here today and listened to you pander to these people, but you don't actually care about them, or you wouldn't be sitting here reinforcing their ignorance and prejudices. I have had it up. To hear with you and your phony issues and your Yankee Doodle yacking. If you like reciting the Pledge of Allegiance every day, then I think you should do it. In the car, in the shower, wherever the mood strikes you. But don't try to tell me when or where I have to say or do or salute anything because I am an American too. And that is what being an American is all about. And another thing, I am sick and tired of being made to feel that if I am not a member of a little family with 2.5 children who goes just to church and puts their hands over their hearts every morning that I am unreligious, unpatriotic, and un-American because I have news for you. All liberals are not kooks any more than all conservatives are fascists. And the last time I checked, God was neither a Democrat nor a Republican. And just for your information, yes, I am a liberal, but I am also a Christian. And I get down on my knees and pray every day on my own turf, on my own time. And one of the things that I pray for is that people with power will get good sense. And people with good sense will get power. And that the rest of us will be blessed with the patience and the strength to survive the people like you in the meantime.
2: Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email stevepride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK 90.7 FM. You can also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, Castbox and Pocket Casts. We close with a song from up and coming recording artist Romero Hamilton Davis, aka Red, called Young Brother. Good night.
0: Young Brother. Very, very extraordinary, Sam Fizz, born in January. I busted out the womb, singing a tune The Whitney Houston at the Super Bowl, the geopolitical race. falls in 91, 27th day of the first month. Coming from where I'm from, Anthony, Hamilton, helped raise me ever since I was a teeny little baby. Young brother, young brother, go build your stacks. Young brother, go and get that cash. Young brother, go. Young brother, go and do your dance. But only after you invest that bread. Young brother, oh. Be, be excellent, black excellence. Why be something other than black excellence? Young brother, be excellent, black excellence. Why be something other than blacker than black. I'll be that. and Why, my community, we spreading the hegemony of you centricity All I hear is lie at the lie. Uncle Sam said he gon' provide for these black lies. Matter to me, my family tree. History, her story. Yes, it's up to me. I'm hitting the streets. Artistically, just for my peace. Living in peace, please, brother. Resources cool like my ancestors did. My distant blood trace from the motherland. Please, bro. Young prince, love that future day. We can say we got black rib blood. Tomorrow, come go on the run. I'm building the funds for the next black generation. Build your Young brother Go and get that cash Young brother Young brother Go to your dance Only after you invest That bread Young brother Oh Be excellent Black Excellence Why be something Other than black Excellence Young brother Be excellent Black Excellence Why be something Other than black black, I'll be there smooth skin like no other, all silk, cocoa butter, reminiscent Queen Helen, young bruh, defender of my sister, brother, daddy, mother, no, I can't forget about my play cousin. I told you about the golden hue, man, if not, I got to preach to that room, fam, go hallelujah. Yeah, boy, bout to bring that flow too, you feeling my groove, mind set on my grind so I cannot lose. You big bruh, mom and pop, first son, family, business, ham, damn, no, what's up? Fresh Prince from the west side of but cute city, baby, no, I said do that up, Burr, success with a crown full of dread lusciousness yes even if our breasts are coming out on top new black and just check mate Huh?